This is a Strategist, episode 1094. My name is Zane Velge. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Carter. Go ahead, Corey. Do it first. Oh, nice. Oh, not yeah. The same. Okay, it's not the go. same. We Can need you to describe the same. what it was the what cracking this, can. Yeah, what this it was, concoction uh, just, is. Oh, my God. It's, it's, a, it's a cream soda, a crushed cream soda. It's good. So the calorie count is going up. Yeah, that's, I'm that's not I'm trying good. a thing. I'm trying my signature thing being bad audio noises at the start because Stephen's been doing it for years and I've been a little jealous, yeah. frankly. I do it better, though. You know, I'm eating something. I'm having like, you know, chocolate covered almonds or something like that, potato chips, popcorn. Yeah. You know, good thing. I take it out most of the time. Most of you the know, time. Uh, cream soda is my favorite chutney. I say this all the time. And <laughs> and people people don't understand me. I feel misunderstood, which is kind of it makes me empathize with Corey a bit. Uh, Carter, listen, you said you were born ready before we started the podcast. Were you actually here two hours ahead of time? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I had an how did you, how did you mess up, this up without a, any travel whatsoever? I had a panic attack because... I woke up from my nap thinking I was late. And you guys know I'm not late. I always arrive on time. I'm right here. I'm ready to record. So I logged on to my computer, but I hadn't been sent an invite. So I did not, because I know it's the same invite every time, but I forget that it's the same invite every time. So it wasn't as... as it's it's also this, not, check it's the not the same <laughs> invite every time. It's not? So. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> Jesus well then it's Thank a really good thing that i didn't go back and find that old invite that's good Corey. then that, yeah. then there's a reason for you sending it out every time there you i go. thought it was You're my welcome. confidence yeah it's almost as though i do that for a reason yeah i thought it was just to take care of me so i don't, I don't know where good. to take it from here Corey. can i can i you let know you what lift it, us it from feels the like trenches? we're lost it feels like we're not where we want to be and so no, let's talk about time. housing Huh? Isn't that what you yeah, want to do? AFL, Zane told us. Are you just taking over the show? AFL playoffs. <laughs> I didn't even know what I'm talking about that. That was Thursday, what I told you. Yeah. Uh, this show could be about anything right That's now. That's true. I, I Thursday, now don't you said it was going to be show, about housing. Though. Just because you said. Is it about housing? Who knows? I haven't decided okay. yet. All right. Now you're making me I want to we'll make see. it about something else. Let's just see what's on top of National News Watch. Hold on. Now, now <laughs> Oh, good. We're just going to. It's a lot of polls. We're you want to talk about polls lately? Oh, it's not so good right now. The latest abacus. You know, I like to, I like, I like to go into their uh, think tank section at the bottom, their international oh, okay. section, and just that's pull how out you a, get, a quick that's hour. How you become sophisticated. Yeah. Anyone? Anyone want to do a quick hour on um, the inescapable uh, Republican primary? Um, <sighs> yeah. I would. Yeah, sure. I I didn't. Uh... Uh, Carter, how about an hour on Keith Spicer, Canada's first official languages commissioner? He's he's dead at eighty nine, but I feel like he deserves a good hour. Oh, for sure. I mean, that was the high, that was high Two times, hours. my friend. Those, one in English, one in French. Yeah, we reach back. <laughs> remember those days? Be good. Yeah. Well, let's just get, let's just get fucking going. Well, let's move it to our first segment. Our first segment, Stephen Carter raising the roof. I do want to talk about housing. More specifically, Carter, the politics of housing. Uh, the liberals had a cabinet retreat this past week in the, in the middle of summer. We've talked about cabinet retreats in the past. Um, we've talked about why they happen, what mm-hmm. the strategy behind them is, their, the reset often, who's there how people speak up, uh, what the jockeying for power looks like, how the media leaks work, all that sort of stuff we've talked about on previous episodes. Um, I don't remember which one, so people can listen to 10, 1093 of them and, and figure out. <laughs> but Corey, today I want to talk about a, a new angle of cabinet retreats. Um, Justin Trudeau and his government uh, let people know last week that they were going to have some experts join them 
from the housing sector to talk about housing, to, to sit on a panel in this cabinet retreat. And I want to talk about two things here today. I want to talk about this broader story of housing, but I do want to kind of ground it in this retreat, especially with how the liberals are dealing with housing, and then talk about uh, cabinet retreats and talk about experts at cabinet retreats and what that looks like. So I'll kind of give you a bit of a roadmap, but I want to start with the housing issue, Corey. And, and, and give me your top line perspective on the liberals with how fucked they are on housing right now. Because they've had to swap ministers. It seems like they might be in the throes of swapping a strategy on housing, at least a policy direction. Perhaps. We don't know yet. And for a long time, it seems to be an issue owned by um, Pierre Polyev in terms of how he's been speaking about housing. But let me get out of the way. How fucked are the liberals on housing, Corey? Well, they've certainly got a, a number of problems of their own making here. Their policy has escalated prices. It's 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 largely been the, the liberal housing policy can largely be described and, and maybe not entirely fairly, but I'm going to do it anyways, as we'll help you spend more money on housing uh-huh. than you were otherwise able to do, which of course is uh, not necessarily going to have the effect of creating as much housing as is needed to, to meet the demand. And we also have comments by the prime minister that, and this is recent comments that housing is not his problem. You know, housing is a provincial jurisdiction. Now, yes, come at me. I've taken that out of context for sure. If you think the conservatives are not going to take it out of context, you are kidding yourselves. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. we've got an issue very, very high on the register of issues, sky high with younger demographics, younger demographics that liberals and, and, you know, left and center left governments have largely relied on. And uh, we have a prime minister who's made uncaring comments, and we have a track record of policies that have not had the effect of creating additional housing in Canada. And and we have hit a bit of a crisis point here. I mean, I, I think we're just retreading older ground here, but the price of housing in Canada relative to the, the climb in the price of housing in the United States has been astronomical. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a problem in the United States, too. So... Maybe I'll leave it there, but to say when you are a government and you are failing to meet kind of physiological needs, you know, the need for shelter, the need for safety, I guess, um, you know, we're pretty low on Maslow's period here. And uh, the hierarchy of needs is, um, you know, it's going to drive a lot of voting behavior here. If you don't feel like you can get a house, you are not going to feel like you can vote for this government. Carter, uh, give me the same sort of rubric that Corey's kind of walked through the fuckery and how fucked the liberals are on this file right now. Well, massively fucked. Um, this is, first of all, uh, I want to start with bringing in the experts and then I'm going to come to a couple of other different points as well. But the reason you bring in an expert is when the, when the policies aren't going to be popular, right? So, you know, everybody wants housing. There's no one, there's no constituency that doesn't want housing. They just don't want housing where we are, right? Like, Greater Che being the exception because Che, you know, Che under Corey's leadership has welcomed much more housing. But for great diversity of housing, for the most part, uh, most communities are kind of drag kicking and streaming and into into anything vaguely resembling densification. Um, So you have a NIMBY group and the NIMBY group. Um, is very strong and powerful. And and they're the ones that are heard at town halls and meetings and they don't understand nuance. And so when you bring in experts, when, when people are bringing in experts, the reason the government is bringing in experts is because they generally know that the, po- the, the, the real solutions aren't particularly popular. So they need to be able to point to the experts and say, you know, this unpopular position is brought to you by Tim Richter, 
uh, or you know any of the other experts that, that show up. And we see this in Calgary, right? Calgary is uh, brought in their own expert panel to to advise city council, and now of course city council is saying no, no, no. Not those recommendations. We we like some of your recommendations, but please keep us out of hot water. We don't want to be in trouble. So that's why you bring in experts. That's the strategic impetus for bringing in experts. But there's other there's two other issues, and and you've kind of brought them in as well. And and these are problems that are common to everybody, right? Like these are, you know, when we're talking about inflationary problems on housing, well. Every voter has to deal with housing. Every voter deals with food. Every voter deals with utilities. Every voter deals with uh, cell phone costs. These are the types of things that just get you into a lot of trouble when you're an elected politician. Because we have a free market economy, ostensibly. Um, We are, you know, the market forces are supposed to be driving these decisions. And yet... um, because things that are regulated, things that are create that the governments kind of put their noses in, often get put into trouble. Uh, we're seeing all these things impacting all at the same time. Um, so, housing is the the latest one, and uh, Trudeau's liber- you know Trudeau's comments, uh, kind of focusing on you know his his own kind of lack of issue with housing. Um, you know, they just kind of bring everything down. I mean, you can see in the polling that was prefaced ever so briefly earlier that, um, you know, Pierre Polyev's doing really well with millennials. Um, could it have something to do with the, with the idea that Pierre Polyev, even though he's only really ever worked in government and, and you know, started making a, a significant $200,000 salary, like almost from birth, um, he seems to be the only one who realized that housing's out of control. And that we need solutions, and he's allowed his caucus to actually speak to the real solutions, uh, regardless of the NIMBYs. So maybe that's why they like him. I, I, I want to get to, I want to get to a couple things here, Carter. You've you've already <laughs> delved into the expert stuff, so I'm going to park that aside. And I'll get back to it. And Corey, let's stick with the politics for a second. Does housing as a file, the way you look at it right now, have all the raw ingredients to become a ballot box question or the ballot box question the next federal election? Well, yeah, I I think so. I I mean, this is one of these issues that is just so big and is going to take so many years to fix. And there are so many people who, well, it's not fixed, who are going to be quite put out. And it's become a thing where if you want to live in a city like Toronto, you better hope your parents have money and generosity, because otherwise that's simply not going to happen. You know, it's it's a problem um, that that I think its scale should not be uh, understated for the people who it affects. If it affects you, it really affects you. It's driving where you can consider living. It's it's creating resentments. It's forcing perhaps relationships that you don't want to be in, uh, whether that be with roommates or a significant other or something like that, because you simply can't afford to leave and go somewhere else. I, you know, it really is the base of Maslow's hierarchy of mm-hmm. needs. Shelter. Mm. You've got you've got to be able to deal with these but things. In, in and- some ways, Corey, isn't is it not more than that? Like for 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 folks that, of course, are, are in housing precarity or homelessness, like there's the roof over your head. But for those, the, to Carter's point around, it impacts everyone. It impacts a lot of us around our latitude to do things like even consider moving to different places, moving to a different house, moving to a different city, moving to a different location sort of thing. So isn't there like this stratified sort of relationship that housing has with the electorate in that way? Yeah, I, th- I look, I think you might be 
somewhat overstating how keen everybody is to move around all of the time. I mean, good point. Yeah, certainly we are in a very mobile society and people contemplate moving to the bigger house down the street or perhaps in the other neighborhood. Less likely, especially when you're planted with kids, you're thinking, I'm going to move to the different city, right? But yeah, it it obviously affects all sorts of things in all sorts of ways. Not all of them negative, by the way. If you happen to have purchased a house before everything was outrageous and now the value of that house is threefold, could literally be threefold. That's an awful lot of equity you have access to. Hmm, maybe you'd like a new car. Maybe you'd like a boat. Stephen doesn't want you to have a boat no because boat. he thinks all pleasure craft should be banned. Listen to the Patreon if uh, if that's news to you. And I, yeah, I mean, th- like that's access to money that they didn't otherwise have. And so this is one of the challenges that the liberals have, I think, rather poorly juggled in the past few years is people want the value of the house they own to go up. It's it's the downsides of the housing crunch that, um, you know, that uh, really seem to stick in people's craws here. But look, before it gets too far in the rearview mirror, Carter said you bring in experts if you have to do something unpopular. That's true. There's another reason to bring in experts, to look like you're doing something. And I think that's probably more the model with the liberal cabinet retreat. They know affordability and housing are super high. Let, let me, let me get to that. List. Let me get to that. And okay. I'll tell you. Bring in the experts. Let me let me get on the experts in a second. I know you're eager to get in there. Carter, talk to me about this. I need to give you a fair shake. Does housing have all the raw ingredients to be a ballot box question next election? Um, generally speaking, we don't do ballot box questions for two years or a year and a half, right? We we generally do ballot box questions for you know six six weeks uh, or maybe even less than six weeks in today's kind of fragmented reality. Like everything is new and everything is moving all the time. So it's really difficult to project that one issue is going to hold. I think I said in the last Patreon that, you know, we we've done a, you know, over a thousand episodes, uh, so it says on the package, uh, talking about issues, and most of those issues are relatively, you know, uh, time de- delayed, right? Like they they only last for a li- limited period of time. Um, housing will only last for a limited period of time as well. I'm just not really sure how long the life is, it very easily could drag into the next election, especially when, if there is something that does drive, like driving prices up is a problem. Corey alluded to this in a, you know, a second ago. Driving prices up is a problem. If prices fall, it's fucking catastrophic, right? Because all of a sudden now that loan that you got- <laughs> It's a lot of people's retirements. Well, the, yeah. the loan that you got to do the upgrade, Corey. You know, when we're roofing your when we're roofing your shed or whatever, we're you know that you know me, you know the work that you and I will do because we are very talented at handy stuff. What is Absolutely. that called? It's handy. Yeah. Hand. And, I think it's called. I'm just going to look at it here. It's, it's called white. Okay. okay go uh, yeah. Thank just you, Zane. I was missing energy. the term. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you know that that loan all of a sudden has got a higher interest rate than anybody expected when they took the loan out. It is now for equity that you don't have in your home and you're still, you know, and you're, and you're paying for it. You're paying, it's essentially a double mortgage. Um, These are the types of downsides that happen if, if housing falls. So you want, you know, like the government tried to do with, with inflation and arguably has done with inflation with threading the needle and trying to make sure that it didn't go too far one direction or the other Housing, I think, will be okay if they hit the right temperature and the right stuff 
early enough and they don't go too far. If they do go too far, housing has the capacity of being, uh, of, of bringing down governments. Oh, yeah. The, the cure could be, quote unquote, worse than the disease if, if it's done improperly. And so this soft landing that Stephen's talking about is super important. But Zane, to your question and the challenge that the liberals now have in front of them is um, it's really tough to, to thread that needle, to make that soft landing, whatever metaphor you prefer, in the time between now and the next election, which let's not forget we're in a minority situation, uh-huh, could, uh-huh. could be any time. Right. And if you're going to make a material change on entry level housing or housing affordability in that short period of time, you are really risking fire on the other side. It just I I was talking to a friend in Toronto a week ago and I I can't remember. It was just small talk, just chatting. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I got, you know, just bought the bigger house. So I'm feeling that mortgage. Well, Uh how does a fellow like that feel? if the value of his house goes down $500,000 overnight. And I don't know how much his house is, but let's say it was 1.5, becomes one. Still unaffordable by many metrics. Yeah. Yes. But that's really yeah. bad if, if you happen to be in, in a situation like now that. Now you've lost all your, your down payment, right? All the, all the money that you invested in the property is gone. All the debt still exists, right? Like it's, it's just a, it, it's a really difficult position for people to find themselves in. And so we're trying to balance off this n- enormous need for housing. Like m- political issues that are actually tough are the worst, right? Like th- mo- lots of political <laughs> lots of political issues are like, oh my goodness, yeah. we got money from the We Foundation. How fucking horrible. They're they're Big about deal. performance and what you can milk out of. Right. Them, right? They're about they're about performance, what they what you can try to use them as symbols or as metaphors for a government, their decision making, their values, etc. But this is a real I can't, problem being felt. I can't yes. afford to live anywhere but this spot. I can't afford to feed my family. I can't afford this this now becomes the 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 foundational this is the foundation of our relationship with government. We want government to protect us from this type of negativity. And Trudeau's government is not, as evidenced uh, by all those polls that you're not having us talk about. Let's ju- let's jump into the to the to the Trudeau liberals right now, and let's get into that expert conversation. Both of you have given me theories around experts. Carter, you're saying experts brought in to insulate from a decision that's going to be unpopular. Paraphrasing Corey, experts brought in to show momentum and that we are doing something. Let's put, park that aside for one more second, and let's talk about experts within the context of a cabinet retreat. Because I promised I would do that. Corey, let's start with you on this. Why are they brought in in front of cabinet? Why not just be a PMO conversation? Why not be at a joint press release? What's the value of bringing that external thinking into a cabinet retreat or into a cabinet meeting of some kind? And and explain to me the dynamics. If you've seen it before, explain to me the dynamics of an external person coming into something that's probably woven in with many layers of politics, not just the politics that we see externally. Yeah. So let's start here. It's super common to have external experts at at cabinet retreats. I can't actually think of a cabinet retreat I've been to or that I've supported in any way that didn't have people coming in and discussing with cabinet different things that could be occurring. And um, it's, it's largely... It's largely a table setting exercise. If you are that PMO, you are saying, okay, what are the things we want the cabinet to be thinking about? And when the schedule is being built and when you're working with your office on building it, it's quite often a conversation about what 
what's the conversation I want to have with cabinet? What are the outcomes I want? When do I want them? What do I need to put in front of them in order to have a productive conversation like that? So like a cabinet retreat is not spring break. You don't show up with your board shorts mm. and say, I can't wait to hit the water. Or There are pre-reads. You show up. You, there are experts who have conversations. There are conversations that are facilitated on particular topics. You might have a situation when you're building the agenda where you say, I want that on day two after everybody's percolated on it the night of day one, because there are social elements in the evenings of cabinet retreats where you are having dinner with colleagues in little clusters and everybody's hanging out and everybody's chatting and you know, whatever it may be. And so, um, like when you talk about the value of an expert at a cabinet retreat, the value is it says both to the cabinet and in this case where they've released it to the public, to the public, what the retreat's going to be about and what we're going to be talking Uh about uh and what's going to be on the agenda for the government over the next little bit. And Corey, let me let me stick with you for one sec, Carter. I'm going to give you the same shake at that at that question. But talk to me about these experts. In this case, you know they they brought in Mike Buffett, Tim Richter, folks that at least the three of us know, and from the housing sector, you know, some on policy, others on advocacy around homelessness and housing precarity. They've broadcast this to the public that this is going to happen. These experts show up. They sit on panels within this cabinet retreat. Corey, talk to me about the mindset of being an expert and being tapped on the shoulder by government. And is there any risk calculation that you have to do? Because at the end of the day, the government is banking on your credibility mm-hmm. and using that as, as an external sort of halo in some ways. Is there any like, if you were advising an advocacy group or if you're advising an expert around how they should show up with government, are they actually indicating that this is a jersey color they wear now? How would you kind of be careful in, in, in a certain way or what rules would you have for them? Yeah, so not a jersey color situation. They are the government and this is not like in their partisan role. Obviously, governments do tend to invite people who are ideologically aligned with them. Mm-hmm. And certainly most of the guests at cabinet meetings are ideologically aligned be- for the simple fact that you don't want somebody that you just, A, is going to propose solutions that you disagree with, or B, you don't feel like you can trust. So that that's a reality, but lots of you know part, nonpartisan technical guests I've seen invited over the years. Um, it's interesting. So the, the normal format is like presentation Q&A from cabinet slash cabinet discussion that mm-hmm, occurs around mm-hmm. that. So they usually go in and you give a little bit of a presentation. I've also seen where multiple experts are brought in, almost like a panel themselves. And when you have almost multiple presentations, short ones, and then a bigger conversation that, you know, can work and cannot work. But um, yeah, it's... Um, I, I don't even remember what my point was at the start of this. Not uh, not atypical no, for me, but I guess not. what I would say, yeah, yeah I know. no, no, it's just uh, <laughs> money and generosity is a currency of politics. Yeah. That's all we need to know. That's the quotable money. It's a quotable quote. Corey, the real question was around a, yeah. a risk for the experts. Is there any? Do they have to do a calculus of any kind, or if the government shows, you just say, "I'm there." Right? I mean, you've got a. It depends on your role. Like, if you're an academic, I think it's like, oh yeah, of course, this is what we yeah. do. We provide expert advice on stuff. If you are a group that is perceived as, you know, more more partisan or advocacy-based, I think you've got to consider how that might affect your advocacy efforts, right? But, you know, ultimately, I, I got to tell you, if a government of any stripe came to me and said, hey, we're, we're going to be doing a cabinet retreat, and we'd yeah. like to talk about AI and communications, an area in which I'm an expert, or, you know, communication structures overall in government, an area Mm -hmm. in which I'm an expert. I would say, sure, you're the government, you're looking for expert advice. 
wild that's on the cabinet agenda in either case, but uh, happy to talk to you because that's what you do. It's the government. Carter, I said I'd give you this, the same shake at the question. Your experience with experts in, in cabinets, give me like the insider take. What have you seen? How has it been structured? Corey said he hasn't been to a cabinet retreat where that hasn't been the case. Give me your perspectives there. And then that same question around um, as an expert, if you get tapped on the shoulder, how do you kind of how do you deal with an invite? Well, let me start with the second part first. Um, you go. Right. You go because, it, you know, Corey's made an excellent point. We sometimes forget in politics that there is a government and then there is a legislature or a House of Commons that is, is kind of distinct. And, and the party itself is distinct again. Right. Like these things are supposed to be three different entities. And the reason for that is that the government isn't supposed to be governing for half the people. We talk about that, you know, oh, they, they got elected. They're only going to represent their only their, their side. The government should be trying. And I know that we have difficulty with this in this difficult kind of partisan times, but the government should be trying to find the best case, the best solution. So bringing in people to talk to and and getting the best outcome and getting the best information is in their interest. However, you know, I I think of Andrew Leach, uh, our our good economist friend, Mm -hmm. Andrew Leach, who has been tarred and feathered with the brush of being a leftist uh, carbon tax freak um, and also a stooge of Stephen Harper, um, you know, for giving basically the same advice to two different levels of government. Then market pricing uh, is probably the best way to approach uh, a, carb- a carbon. Uh, you know, universally, universally, I think recognized as one of the experts, um, certainly in Canada, I would argue in the world. Um, but he gets pegged when he goes and he talks to people. And they, but he's also been asked to take it a step further and implement, right? So it's not just give us your smart ideas. He, he's he's a bit mm-hmm. you know more ingrained. But regardless, you're going to get de- dinged by the opposition. You're going to get dinged by the other team. Anytime that politics happens, political actors are going to do what political actors do, misrepresent the facts, spin things to their own benefit, um, you know, that's just the nature of this particular game. But you have to play this game. If you are uh, an expert in your field, you must play the game. And my comment back to anybody who feels like, you know, playing the game is going to put them into uh, difficult straight is just, you know, learn to play the game better. Um if you want to make real change, if you want to see better housing outcomes, if you want to see better uh, decisions being made in, in Canada or around the world, know how to play this game. Listen to our podcast. Understand what it means to do what what the politicians are thinking, because then it will make you better and you stronger. Um, so that's the first part or the second part of the question. And of course, I've forgotten the first part of the question. First part, give give me your your insight on like what you've seen these uh, expert uh, panels look like, presentations look like, the dynamics as being like the external person amidst all these politicians who are jockeying for something in their own right. Like, give me that that tale, that insight. The beautiful thing about this is that you know who the sticking points are. Right. Like, you know what arguments are going to work with certain people like this isn't the first time you're going to be shocked to find this out saying this isn't the first time that housing's come up in a house in, in a cabinet meeting. Um, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> cabinets mm-hmm. deal with issues and this issue is real and it is around. But there are sticking points. There are arguments. There are discussions. There are disagreements. And so you're bringing in experts to paper over some of those problems and expert, you know, 
biases or, you know, it's really bad in this region, but it's not so bad in that region. So which region are we favoring when we choose to do this? Does this hurt me in, you know, if this if this action is taken uh, to ease pressure in the lower mainland in downtown Toronto, does it hurt me in Cape Breton? Um, so these experts would be brought in to answer some of those questions. The, the, the personalities like you will have crafted, you know, who, who will really respond to Mike Moffat, you know, who will really respond to, um, uh, Rickman, right? These, these things are sculpted, they're crafted, and they're crafted with particular outcomes. Corey talked about the social event. You know, it's going to be someone's job to walk up to the person who's really being a pain in the ass and saying, listen, I, 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 I heard your questions in the room and let's sit down together and chat about it because I think we're really much closer than you think we are. Uh, and that conversation happens that evening when the, the guest is asked to stick around for dinner. Um, and that just happens to be placed at the table, uh, with the person who needs to hear from them the most. Those are the types of, I don't want to say games, but we work with Mm -hmm. personalities. And when you work with personalities, you must recognize, um, that part of working with people is, is understanding how they work and tick. So that's part of this as well. Answering questions, you know, you can't just mow in with the prime minister every time and say, I've made a decision. This is where we're going. Um, that's how you you lose your cabinet and you lose your caucus. Corey, experts come in with a personal expertise, right? They come in with the vision of their own often. They come in with the pathway that they feel like should mm-hmm. be recommended. Give me your insight on what you've seen work. Is it the this is the way to do it and this is the holy grail or is it more of a loose, soft, persuasive approach? What have you seen? And frankly, what would you recommend amidst that dynamic? And you might, your answer might be case to case, but I'm really just trying to get a bit more insight in terms of how you feel experts best appear and how governments are best persuaded in that particular environment. Yeah, I will say that the degree really depends on where you are in the issue. Like, are you Mm -hmm. trying to convince cabinet that this is something that needs to be tackled? Or are you trying to say, okay, cabinet, now we are going to be building solutions and this is the solutioning part of it. But either way, you probably don't want to have a presentation as an expert. And I should say, like, these aren't pre-vetted by the you know PMO generally. Like they're not going to say these decks or whatever they're. Well, I, I don't know how the PMO runs, so I shouldn't say that. Right. But in my experience, the you know most actual experts are not going to want to have their stuff scrubbed by a premier's office or no, a prime but, minister's. But office. we know what they're mm-hmm. going to say, Corey, because they've written oh, papers. We know what they're going to say. Put out so positions. They've been on a record. They've been on their Twitter account, yeah. etc. Yeah. Yeah. You you arrange the menu, the venue, the seating, and and the people that are there are going to say the things they're going to say. That That's all true. But as an expert, even if you're in the kind of the open, like, oh, yeah, like you should know that this is a looming storm cloud problem, you do want to get to solutions, right? Now, how mm-hmm. fleshed out they are, how much they're looking at pros and cons and all of that depends on where you are in the stage. But And this is a political acumen fan, you know, fundamental here. Don't come with problems, come with solutions, yeah. right? Like this is true when you're talking to your boss. This is true when you're talking to cabinet. This is true when you're talking to anybody uh, who might be in a position to resolve the challenges that you have here. Because the most frustrating thing in the world as a decision maker is when you say, boy, I'm convinced this is a problem. What do we do about it? And they go, I don't know. 
you know, like a fuck if I know, like yeah. that's not helpful. We so, don't need experts in diagnosis as much as we need well, experts in. We in- sometimes need experts in diagnosis, but we always need experts in uh, diagnostic medicine, like in mm-hmm. giving the prescription mm-hmm. that's going to resolve it. Yeah. And so uh, you definitely want to come in with an expert with a couple of solutions in your belt. Say like, so like, let's talk about the version where you're trying to raise the flag and say, this is a problem in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the ear of somebody in the premier's office, perhaps the premier, the prime minister's office, perhaps the prime minister. And so you run through a presentation and you talk about, you know, the, the migration habits of ducks are really, really changed now. And this is what the consequences could be. And at the end, everyone says, your evidence on duck migration is amazing. We got to, we got to deal with this duck migration problem. Uh, what do we do? And you got to say, well, there's like, there's five solutions, you know, people might debate about them. My personal preference is number one. Let me tell you about all five of them very quickly. Like you've got to be able to do something like that. And you've got to be able to put something on the table that they can then react to and have conversation about. Carter, what what have you seen as being the best version of persuasion by experts to government? Um, it, it could be in that cabinet retreat setting, which I've tried to confine this conversation to, or it could be outside of it. If you have an example that that kind of rises above the rest, we can hear is, about yeah. I, and gets this is driving. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> you can see that from a mile away, Carter. What's been the best example of persuasion that you've seen at a, at a cabinet retreat level? S- simple, simple solutions with a single course of action. Right. So let me give mm. you, let me work off of what I think is not particularly successful. And that's the one, that's the, the list of, or, of recommendations that's going to city council in Calgary. Um, they have, I think, 30 plus recommendations. Anytime you get into 30 plus recommendations, we can look at the uh, uh, truth and reconciliation report. We can look at the, you know, the, all of these reports are expert panels that come back Um in some fashion, right? Like uh, they may not be an expert presenting to cabinet, but you know, you could imagine doing your PowerPoint presentation and finishing on 12 different slides of things that should be done uh, in order to fix this problem. And you're going to get exactly Mm. zero of them. Uh, Or maybe you get one, right? Maybe they, they cherry pick one. Um, What you really want to do is you want to present one solution one time or a small suite of solutions. Here is an omnibus bill that would make three changes in this legislation around housing standards, this this change in in overarching property rights, this change in, you know, Canadians really don't have a property right. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, like they, they, whatever your su- suggestions should be, they, they shouldn't be th- in the 30s. They should be in the in the threes to fours. Then you've got focus. You may have competing recommendations from competing experts, but mm-hmm. but I'll tell you something. It's a lot easier to hone in on the three or four recommendations from one expert than the thirty recommendations from the next expert. So, fo- especially when there might be crossover. Would you agree with the statement, Corey? I want to let you get on this as, as well, responding to Carter. But am I? right in paraphrasing what you've just said, which is you would rather risk being reductive or overly simplistic with a couple of recommendations versus being comprehensive with 10 to 15 that that might add more detail and more complexity. I guess the, the question is really about audience and their ability to absorb in certain you're, ways. You're presenting to idiots. And I don't mean like they're, they're, they're not idiots necessarily in everything, <laughs> right? But it's hoping where, where you're they going. aren't. Yes. 
housing experts, right? And and so we go back to our Dunning-Kruger effect, right? The Dunning-Kruger effect says if you know one, you know, like if you know a small number of facts, you have a heightened sense of confidence. These presentations are designed to, to move voters, or I'm not voters, politicians, to the peak of Mount Stupid. That's where we want them. That's where they're most effective. The peak of Mount Stupid. We don't want them in the Valley well, the of Despair. The wind is behind their back. Right. We do not want them dropping through the valley of despair and sliding up this slow slope of enlightenment. You did that because you're the expert. You're the one who went to school. You're the one who learned everything. You're the one who spent decades learning and becoming an expert in this industry. I just need you to move my politicians to the peak of Mount Stupid. Please, God, do not give them too many recommendations. Do not give them too much to chew on because they they just simply can't. This is only one file. This is only one thing that they were talking about mm-hmm, the cabinet mm-hmm. retreat. Even if you get one of those cabinet retreats, very rare cabinet retreat, where it's only one subject, most of the time you're getting multiple subjects. You're getting like you don't get one. I've never even seen one of those. That's a, that's, that's just not that's a fascinating point, yeah. Carter. You're you're ultimately saying give them something, empower them. And you empower them by perhaps even being reductive, but you give them the confidence to to use the power that they collectively have in that room to actually move, it's, to actually do something versus giving them everything puts them into a position of per, per, potential paralysis. Corey, I want, I want to get you in on this. Uh, the, the suite of things Carter and I have been talking about for the last five hey, minutes uh, between Corey you know how to deal with too, experts. You know, he yeah. does. Um, yeah. and and kind of like the the nature of their presentation, and then my follow up to Carter around like, um, how and 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 what exactly that tactically looks like. I think that's pretty good general advice of Stevens that you want to you can't drown them, and and it is kind of a kitchen sink approach to communications. Anyhow, to say here's a hundred things I want you to remember, they'll remember none of them, right? You've got a flag like that. If there's one thing I want you to take away from this, it's X. Like I would literally use that phrase if I was an expert. Mm-hmm. Right? I would, I, you know, I have a, I like to make a presentation at my very first slide. Be here's the 30 second version of my presentation. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell it to you. And then I'm going to ca- end it all. And I'm going to cap it on by saying, here's what I just told you. And that's the only hope you have likely for them to remember even the 30 second version, because otherwise it's going to be largely feel remembering that you're an expert. You might want to tell them there is a menu of a hundred solutions that they can reach out to you to, to get a little bit more information on, or that you can connect with their departments on. That's probably helpful, but to provide it to them right there, not only will it be overwhelming, but it also will seem to cabinet quite presumptuous. Like if you're saying, okay, so you've got a housing problem. And so I'm going to tell you the hundred things you need to do on housing. I'm going to resolve all of your problems. They're going to look at you like, who the, who the fuck is this person, right? You, But if you say, hey, listen, I'm an expert in this space, and here's the three things I think you really need to focus in on or consider, that's going to come off a little bit different. But ultimately... Talking to cabinet in particular, talking to any small group like this, my advice is the same. You know, this is a presentation where you need to know your audience, you need to know your goals, and you need to know yourself. What does your audience know about this? What's their level of knowledge? What's their self-perception of their level of knowledge? Might not be necessarily what it is. What's their view of you? Do they see you as somebody who has expertise in this area? Are they a little skeptical that perhaps maybe they think you're a little too right wing, right? Maybe they think your solutions have been tried and failed. You've got to know that going into that thing. And what do you want them to do with the information you're providing? There's that goal of yours. And you've got to be pretty focused on that. You've got to make sure you're repeating the thing that you want them to take away pretty regularly 
going back to it in any Q&A that you've got, chatting about it a bit at dinner, if you're lucky enough to be invited to the dinner, which mm-hmm. you probably only will if you're the last speaker of the day. So um, th- that's my advice in general as an expert who is speaking there. Uh, and quite often, less is more, but do be aware you were there as an expert. So let them know more exists, right? Like you don't want to come off as like some super superficial, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. shell of a person. Let, let me pull us out of this for a second. So we talked, I got your initial take on the housing file for the politics of it. I mean, it would take us hours to detangle the policy of it, right? So we haven't been talking about the policy. I'll admit that, yeah. right? I got your guys' take on like the communications of an expert, where we kind of go. Let me get back onto the housing file. Let me split this up in three different ways. Let me talk about the liberals. Let me talk about the conservatives. And then let me talk about the advocacy that that needs to happen here on in. Uh, and that advocacy question really will tie back to the ballot box question I asked you earlier. Carter, let's start with the liberals. Was it a strategic mistake after telegraphing that this is going to be a housing cabinet retreat, I put housing in quotes, after having two experts that you told people are going to show up to not have a policy announced at the end of that cabinet retreat? Was that a mistake on their part or was that a was that fine for you? And and, and give me give me your take on that. And Corey, I'll come to you with that same question. I think it's absolutely fine. I think that the problem with, you know, oh, we just had this cabinet res- retreat is that you and now we've got the solutions, we've got the immediate action, is that it looks like you had the answer all along. Um, Mm. And, you know, it was just, it was one of those, you know, those, those events that you go to the, you know, the, the work is all been done by the bureaucrats, everything's all been decided. And all you need to do now is just the prime, the, the, the first ministers meet or the health ministers meet and they, and they write a, I communicate at the end of the uh, at the end of the event, saying yes, we we all agree, we're all spectacular. Um, there's not very much to that, right? Like it's it doesn't really give us anything. So I think that the right mm-hmm. answer is, especially with a housing file that is so complicated, is to commit to a timeline, and then deliver to that timeline. Um, and that may not be satisfactory uh, to people who want action now. But I, I think that this file is just too big and too complex to be fucking around with. This is a real, this is a real file. This is impacting people's lives, and they need better solutions. So, take your time. Uh, it's not unlimited. You've got to bring something to this fall session, uh, but you do not need to have it in the middle of August uh, when you know, e- even our subscribers are you know only paying attention 20 hours a day, not 24 hours a day. Corey, what do you think? Mistake that they didn't have an announcement or even a pathway to something new at the end of that retreat on housing? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I I could make an argument that it was because they're a little behind the curve to begin with. And if the cabinet announcement of the experts was part of a communication strategy. You sort of want to follow that up with some expectations, but it is the dead of summer. Stephen's right. People are not paying huge amounts of attention. And I also completely agree with Stephen that if you come out of it with the solution after like a couple of days conversation, it just looks like it was like a wholly insincere exercise to begin with, right? And I think a lot about, well, I actually don't think a lot about it at all, but I think in this case, a comp would be uh, Michael Ignatieff, when he was leader of the Liberal Party, held this three-day thinkers conference in Montreal called Canada 150. And if you don't remember it, that's fine. 
because it wasn't that memorable in the final summation. But the idea was you brought really, really bright people, experts from all sorts of fields to come in. They would speak to a room of like 200 people who were, you know, more senior in the Liberal Party. And, um, you know, and then we would all kind of distill this information into like some grand new mm-hmm. policy renewal for the Liberal Party, right? This was the notion of it there. And I, I got to tell you, like it was a pretty remarkable three days. Like it was three days really just talking about policy, you know, deep conversations, really insightful things, made you think about issues in ways you hadn't thought about them before. And I was, I'd say, just before the speech, before the end, like quite inspired, pretty enthused about it, thinking like, oh my goodness, I, I think differently about so many different things. And I have so many different notions as to what solutions could be, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Ignatieff comes in and he gives his closing speech. And his speech is like, well, after all of this, I've decided we are definitely going to raise the corporate tax rate back up that Stephen Harper has reduced, right? Didn't come up during the conference. If it did, I don't think that many of the speakers would have been pro raising the corporate tax rate, but that's not here nor there. It was like, it was so deflating. It was like, this was all bullshit. Like this was all just a communications exercise and this is all going nowhere now because like it, there was no connection. There was no did line it end up going nowhere? Did any of those like raw ingredients you saw over those three days end up I, I in mean, any honestly, meaningful way? I, I don't know, Zane. I, hmm. um, I, I didn't necessarily see that causation. Certainly it didn't integrate deeply into the liberal policy process, but I'm sure there were a lot of people who like me went to it and came away with ideas and affected things in, in smaller ways along the way. Mm-hmm. But I, I would say that my view of it with distance at this point is not that like this was a particularly material exercise, right? Like it just, it, it didn't really affect things in any kind of big ways. And so that's a bit of a shame. Um, but that that kind of deflation would also be internal. Like if if the PMO invited a bunch of people to talk to cabinet and say, we're going to listen to the experts. And then the PMO, as soon as it was done, is like, here's the solutions we're going to do. Everybody in that room is going to know the die was cast. It was baked. This was nothing. Yeah. And so you've got to be a bit mindful of that as well. It's not just the external and the communications value you might have from a follow on where you've teased this to the public. It's the internal uh, dynamics of it as well that that would drive. Carter, quick follow up. And then I want to ask you one more question about the liberals before we move. I on. think also though, the, the, that, you know, the press secretary should have been telling the media, don't expect a, an announcement out of this. You know, we, we are taking it mm. extremely seriously. Uh, we feel that this is, uh, this is an issue that, if done improperly, could negatively impact Canadians. And we're not going to do that. So we're going we're gonna to move with um, appropriate speed. And, and here's our timeline. But this is, this is step six in, the pro, in a 12-step process. This isn't step 12. Carter, politics is about making choices. Let me let me lay out some of the facts. I should have done this earlier, but Canada Morg- uh, CMHC is saying six million houses in the next seven years. That's what we need yeah. to, 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 to bring affordability back to the market. Monumental task. So if you're the liberals right now, you've got to do a bit of lane picking, right? You can't necessarily hedge too much because that's what they've been doing thus far. I'm going to give you two lanes because you can't build six million homes tomorrow, right? Big idea that you sell the public on around housing? Is your announcement a big, massive, innovative idea that's going to take time that you announce? Or is it quick acting, right? It's it's kind of back to the Seinfeld joke, right? Like, do I need quick acting or long lasting, right? Do I need to feel better now or later? Like, wh- what's, the, what's the deal, right? So if you're the liberals right now, is your strength selling big, symbolic, like, visionary stuff? 
or is it now? And I know you're going to say a bit of both, but give me the case for, for one or the other that you feel like if you had to put your chips down on one, all of the chips, what would you put them down on? Well, this is the problem with democracy. Um, if I had to put my chips on one, I would put the chips on the one that's going to pay off before the next election. Uh, the one that's going to keep uh, Jagmeet Singh in my corner, uh, the one that's going to keep us elected more likely. Um, and so I would probably be picking something that's going to have an almost immediate impact, uh, something that would be I done quickly. I did not think that was going to be the conclusion of your statement, to be honest. Well, I thought you were going to go with big idea at the end no, of the day. I mean, big ideas get get you unelected. I mean, big ideas that don't impact pocketbooks, that don't, that don't show, mm-hmm. you know, how do I benefit? Like if, if you can't answer the question, how do I benefit? And I mean, right now, um, I'm just not sure that voters have patience for you any longer. And this, this is a voter problem. This isn't the great, you know, I'm not saying this is a great outcome, but this is a real outcome. And it is a problem in our democracy that we think in four year stints. Um, it is what it is. What are you going to do? You know, so if I don't get, you know, do I think that we need a visionary outcome? Do I think that we need someone to make a visionary statement? Absolutely. But Ed Stelmack, when he brought in the 10 year plan to end homelessness, uh, was gone in year three. We didn't end homelessness. Corey, I'm making you pick big idea, immediate action. Well, I, why, why not both? I actually don't know do that both, they're Because I wasn't allowed exclusive. to do both. I, under, I, under, I understand they're not mutual. But, I, but I, I'm doing this as an exercise. You see what I'm okay. trying to do, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm kind of trying to force your hand in one way or another. Yeah. Like, what are they ultimately, if they have to default to something as being like, we've, there, there is some meat on the bone to our housing plan. They're going to default to something. They're kind sure. of not going to be like, we're doing a bit of this, bit of that. Like, if they had to pick, what do you think? Well, if they had to pick, they would pick immediate action because Mm. it's a big idea in an area of provincial jurisdiction. The prime minister wasn't wrong about that previously. So you're only going to have so many levers that you can pull to begin with. And um, the other thing is, it seems to be elevating the other guy's ballot box question. So if you spend all of your time being as big and dramatic and splashy as possible on an issue that you were at the switch when it became a crisis point. You know, this is government's been in government since 2015 at this particular moment. And it's something Pierre Polyev, to his credit, has been raising alarm bells about for years, years before you even cared about it. In fact, you, there's a lot of eye rolling by the liberals. In, mm-hmm. uh, frankly, there was eye rolling by me uh, when Pierre Polyev was doing all of this, right? So it becomes difficult for me to imagine that, like, you're going to make it the centerpiece of your communications going forward. It seems like a very defensive communication strategy and it feels like one where you're not likely to win in the time frames you need to win in sorry to use that language but that's probably the way they'd be thinking about it so why would you do something big that's going to draw an awful lot of attention to it this is a defensive issue for the liberals this is where they've got to take smart practical actions that are doing things that they can arm people with well you know it's provincial jurisdiction but the government's done these 12 things right um but uh, on the other hand the thing that the liberals are going to be fighting with is that people want action. And so maybe this is just a Justin Trudeau announces 200,000 units being built by the federal government. That'll be rent to own, you know, so Canadians can get themselves into the housing. I don't know, but uh, it it does feel like there's a bit of an appetite for Mm. the government to resolve this. Carter, I'm going to come to you on this. Polyev. Yeah, he's got a prescription of what what you'd call mostly conservative solutions, right? Get government out of the way, 
you know, take these federal buildings, offload them, hold municipalities to account in certain ways, you know, certain amounts of deregulation. He's talked about gatekeepers, et cetera. I'm, I'm brushing over the policy specifics. I recognize yeah. that. How could Pierre Polyev fuck up this file, Carter? It seems like it's in his message box. It seems like it's in his lane. It seems like an issue he wants to keep elevating, perhaps even volley to keep alive as a ballot box issue. What lessons would you have for Pierre Polyev around how he could fuck up on this issue that seems to, I can't say guaranteed, but seems to now be more in his lane than not? Yeah, I think the problem with him is is that at some point, people are going to listen to his solutions, and they're going to realize that if we implement his solutions, um, then it's going to be a NIMBY situation, right? Oh, I, I, that you know, Pierre, that's an interesting idea that you've got there. Um, but if you change those zoning, <laughs> if you change zoning everywhere, um, that includes my single family home, and that that's you know, our neighborhood's unique. Uh, we you know, we have a covenant and that covenant protects us from having these people come in. Um, so we think that you're wrong in the specific, but in the general, we understand what you're saying. So his problem is as soon as it becomes specific, as soon as it becomes something that people can point to, they're very quickly going to understand that the solutions are NIMBY, uh, are, are NIMBY opposed. It is density. It is, it is zoning. It is, you know, we drove past a rooming house the other day. Well, you know, a rooming house. Well, that's ridiculous. We couldn't possibly have a rooming house, except that that's how people used to, you know, low-income people used to to live. And it wasn't bad. Um, put standards in place. But, you know, oh, no one wants to live next to a rooming house. So we don't have rooming houses anymore. Uh, you know, what solutions are we prepared to put up with? We don't want tenements. Okay. So now we do mixed housing. Well, mixed housing is just another word for tenement, right? So we can't allow that, not in my neighborhood. So I think that that's where his, his big weakness is. As soon as these solutions start to be contemplated, he may have to own some of them. Corey, what do you think? How, do, how does Pierre screw this up, let this go, not leverage it maximally? I, I mean, I agree and I disagree with Stephen. I think that that is the the messiness that comes out of a strategy that he's talked about, where he's saying maybe there's some strings that we put on money to municipalities, we get them to open up their development, you know, processes to allow all of things things to happen a little bit better, a little bit faster. We use the federal properties that exist, we make them available. When it becomes, um, you know, the next level of conversation, the next day of conversation, however you want to phrase it. That is obviously where you're going to see the tensions that Stephen has identified. But what I think is maybe a bit of the brilliance of his strategy is kind of feels like that's the municipality's problem at that point, right? And yeah, the municipality's going to say, well, we had to do this because the prime minister said it. And he'll say, no, I never said you had to be doing this like uh-huh. this way. Like, how dare you? This is the problem. Municipalities, the gatekeepers who keep breaking the rules and not listening to common sense. Like, it, it doesn't even need to be that consistent, frankly. I think the fact that the person who's actually going to have to deliver this service is not him is, uh, you know, is a, is a feature, not a bug, I guess I would say. For me, where I think he could get into a little bit of trouble if he gets too far ahead of himself is like I, I he's going to have a lot of sympathy on development rules being very complicated it being bloody impossible to build things in all sorts of communities across Canada including in Calgary in many areas right 
but I think he's got to stay there and not get into building codes, right? When mm-hmm. I, I've seen some sort of hints about people saying, well, it's it's becoming just very, very hard because of all of these rules around like building something. But the thing about building codes is they are almost all reactionary. They are because something happened that required the building code to be developed. And um, where he runs into trouble there is if he starts suggesting taking different actions, all it takes is one tragedy in one old house where that code didn't exist for the story to turn on him in a big way. So like, don't get so specific. Don't get into building codes, stick to development and uh, leave it with the cities, leave it with the municipalities to, to carry the bag. Corey, you mentioned something interesting here, Carter. Um, I'm going to come to you in a second. Um, Corey, you and I are both familiar with positionless basketball, right? This, this concept that yeah. it's not about the position anymore. It's about every player can play totally. every position. That's what Everybody you're recruiting does. for. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you, you want to run a team. Are we in this era of like positionless politics where it doesn't matter where a particular issue finds its jurisdiction? If it's advantageous to you, just go after it, pick it up and make it a thing. And does housing kind of represent the tip of the spear? Or have we been doing this for a long time and Zane is just now noticing in the last 35 seconds when hearing your answer? Uh, well, we are de- we've definitely been doing this for a long time. And I don't I'm not gonna get into full history mode. Sure, here, but sure. I'll tell you things like labor law in the early twentieth century. And you gotta keep in mind labor law didn't exist when Canada was created. If people thought about labor law, it was about the fact that unions were illegal and should be illegal. Like that's mm-hmm. that's the era mm-hmm. our country was founded in. But when we started creating labor laws in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, the feds just, they just made some, right? Because this was an issue that people wanted action on. And so they said, ah, we'll just start regulating federal labor. And it took literal decades of court cases to settle that all out. We could go through all of them because they're pretty interesting, but I won't bore you, right? Uh, But it's a situation where a constituency said, we want action, take the action, let's go. Property rights, Pretty clearly provincial, pretty clearly that was their area of jurisdiction. We got a little more sophisticated as we moved on as a country, uh, but ultimately the conversations have been the same. Healthcare is not a federal jurisdiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Canada Health Act, quite an elaborate way around yeah. that, right? Uh, you look at almost all of our social program fundings, they are dealing with areas of provincial jurisdiction that the federal government is just saying, well, we do have a certain authority and power in taxing, and we're going to use that, and we're going to use that to fund the things at the provincial level we want. And uh, similarly, you know, the province has often tried to butt into areas of federal jurisdiction simply because they were matters of concern locally, right? Waterways, big thing for as long as Canada's been a country, right? The effects of, you know, different federal regulations on waterways. The environment, of course, we've been talking a lot about recently, you know, environmental monitors from the federal government coming into provincial areas. I, you know, I think this positionless approach has been the politicians, it's been their situation forever. The courts have gotten a little bit firmer along the way or clearer just with time as to what is covered in different jurisdictions. Uh We work that out still on a yearly basis. But um, yeah, I mean, you can't really trust politicians to stay in their sandbox. They're going to try to go into somebody else's sandbox. And then we have to deal with things like 
pith and substance and the doctrine of colorability and all of those things that I bet you don't want to enter into at the 58-minute mark. I think we should. But, but Carter, the rhetoric around this, are we going to see more of this? Like, are, do you suspect that politicians are – we're just going to – because – let me uh, borrow a Stephen Carter phrase. We're dealing with idiots. Yes. Uh, unquote. <laughs> that politicians are just going to find whatever, regardless of where it sits on the map, which jurisdiction it rightfully belongs in, what the legal ramifications or, frankly, the challenges of execution are, if it fits my story. I'm going to insert it in. Are we going to see more of that? Yeah, we always have. We always will. And part of the reason is, I mean, I remember one of my very first uh, town halls, I was working with with Joe Clark and a woman, you know, starts asking him questions about um, the sidewalk in front of her house. And I was like, whoa, you know, what are we doing? We got to get him out of there. We got to, you know, this isn't, it's not, certainly not federal jurisdiction. Oh, he answered the question. He pointed her in the right direction. If the voters don't know, then it's in the politician's interest to make it his his or her own issue because they can look like they can either solve the issue, they can pass the buck on the issue, they look good on the issue, they look bad, you know, like their opposition looks bad. This is this is just politics, right? So you reach and you cherry pick. I mean, you cherry pick and you make the other level of government the bad guy. You know, one of the things that I'd always thought about a PST in Alberta was we shouldn't do a PST in Alberta. Instead, or provincial sales tax, not to use acronyms, sorry, acronym there. Um, but we should do a penny tax. And a penny tax would be in 100% local. And it would be up to 2% and they could designate where the proceeds went. Why did I think that was such a great idea? Because then I could pull all of my MSI grants, uh, you know, all the, the munif- munif- municipal infrastructure grants back out. And then, you know, I don't have to pay those municipal infrastructure grants. If Nahed Nenshi wants to have himself a uh, uh, penny tax, that's Nahed's problem. I've just solved my problem, which is I don't have to increase or put in a penny tax, a provincial sales tax. This is always going to go on. It is the nature of politics. You know, I can use my jurisdiction to fuck you. I will always play fuck your buddy. In politics, that's the <laughs> that's the name of the game, baby. Let's go. We're going to leave that segment there. Moving on to our final segment, our over under in our lightning round. Stephen Carter, I'm going to get some advice from oh. you. I'm going to start with you because you you left on such a high note. Uh, your sentence of advice to advocates on housing: How do they keep this volley alive? We seem to be at another cyclical high point on the file. How do they keep the issue alive if they want it to be, for example, that ballot box question next time around? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Don't make it about affordable housing. Make it about other, you know, make it about voters housing. And I know that sounds horrible and I apologize, blah, blah, blah. don't care. Here's the thing. Voters are the ones that are sitting in those middle income suburbs. They have different values. The reason that they're in, the reason they don't live in Che is because they don't think like Corey Hogan. Um, if they did think like Corey Hogan, they would live in Che and they would have a smaller house and it'd be a, uh, you know, a heritage home and it'd be fantastic. And we'd all be the same. Probably be the president of Che. Corey is very easy to Yeah, defeat. very easy to he's, he's, I mean, he's a very soft he's been, he holds. He's been buying, <laughs> buying votes and it'd be very easy to unseat him. Anyways, my point is make it about the voters. Don't make it about necessarily the problem. And, and I'm sorry. I wish we didn't have to think like that, but you do. You have to make it about voters, not about the problem. Corey, your advice to advocates, regardless of where they might be on on the spectrum of the file between housing precarity all the way to those, you know, uh, who are who are kind of wanting roofs over everyone's head sort of thing. 
Well, you've got the initiative right now. Everybody is talking about this as an issue. And this really is the time for simple, patchable, as we say, shovel-ready solutions for these problems. And even if your solutions are not simple and not packageable and not shovel-ready, you've got to think about how you can make them appear that way and feel that way for the politicians who are going to be grabbing for answers, right? They're going to be looking for solutions and... Uh, you know, Carter thinks they're idiots. I don't. No, they're, they're idiots. Just, you know, I, they, everybody's an idiot. You no, know, we all heard not you, Stephen. Yeah, we heard yeah. it. It was pretty We all clear. heard it. We all heard okay. it. Okay. It was clear but, as Sprite chutney. <laughs> smart, smart people listen to smart people. And if you can give them answers and you have credibility in that space and it's an issue the public already cares about, that's great. I mean, I in a funny way, like, what are you going to go out and advocate to say this is a bigger... It's the number one issue in the country. Solution time. Let's get moving. Corey, smart people. Listen to smart people. Give me a smart answer for the liberals. Sentence of advice to them on the heels of this cabinet retreat. Well, I, it is, it's not an issue that you are going to win on. It's only an issue that you can avoid losing on. So find the thing that moves this off the docket, gets it talking about the things that you do so well, rather than the things that are naturally going to lead to Pierre Polyev's answers. And consider Pierre Polyev's answers. Like, I know that your ego doesn't want you to, and I know that ideologically you might be a little bit chafed by the notion, but what if you just did it? Then, then what's he going to do in the next election? You know, what's he going to run against you on? It's literally your policy, too, then. The liberals at their most electorally successful are shameless thieves from the other oh, parties. Yeah. And this mm. might be a time to be a shameless thief. They have shown that tendency, especially borrowing and outright stealing from the left. It's an interesting point to maybe steal They used from, to do it from the right from the a right. lot more as well. I guess yeah. in recent memory, right? Yeah, like, this, and I, and this, this is almost is my, my point. Yeah, like you can steal from both sides. They're Carter? both there for you. Line of advice for the liberals. No, number one, steal from Pierre Polyev. Totally agree with Corey. Number two, um, it is it is about having a comprehensive plan that is seen to be action oriented. And number three, choose your enemies. Um, you know, Ford is a great foil right now because he's trying to solve the housing problems by lining his pockets. You know, join. Join in those attacks, find enemies, make it the municipal governments and the provincial governments who are supposed to own this file. And now you're reluctantly coming in to clean up the mess that these guys made. Um, and you wouldn't you don't want to do it. But here's your here's your here's our enemy. Our common enemies are. And then you have those enemies and you're able to to use them to achieve the things that you're actually trying to achieve. Don't try and be holier than thou. Go in and smack some heads around. Carter, you've already given a bit of advice to Pierre Polyev, but crystallize it in a sentence for me as we finish off the pod. Keep doing what you're doing. I mean, he's he's not only bringing the the issue to the forefront, he's putting forward suggestions and, he's, and it's all helping him. I mean, Pierre Polyev's not supposed to be leading with millennials. Um, that's just not supposed to happen. And he is because he's speaking a language that they understand and that they appreciate uh, on an issue that is incredibly important to them. Uh, so keep doing what you're doing, buddy. You and I, you know, let's get together Corey. for coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Corey, lay it on me. What is the advice that Pierre Polyev uh, needs to needs to take from one Corey Hogan on the housing file? 
Well, I, I I generally agree with Stephen. He's got to keep doing what he's he's doing here. There are, I think, opportunities to point to jurisdictions where solutions that he's proposed are working. We've talked about that in the past, and and maybe that's a bit of the storytelling that needs to come on this particular front. And finally, if the Liberals do try to take the credit from you, then you've got to make sure that everybody knew in advance that it was your solution. So you've got to amplify your solutions out there a bit more and make sure that people know what you're proposing so that when the Liberals do heed my good advice and steal your solutions, you have a fighting chance of saying they were your solutions. We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 1094 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Velge. With me, as always, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.